Apparently, I was not looking at our Wednesday night Bible study schedule last week when I said this week we would be talking about the mark and number of the beast. That's actually scheduled for February 15th. For tonight, we were supposed to find out how to defeat the devil. So, if you came in hopes of finding out how to defeat the devil, I'm going to need you to come back next week. That's quite a teaser, isn't it? <laughs> Tonight, uh, now Dave, behave yourself. Um, tonight, you are going to find out uh, about the mark and number of the beast and about the number of your own name. Your name can be calculated to a number. And if any of you add up to 666, you have to leave. <laughs> no, Oasis says everybody's welcome. <laughs> um, what else do we say? Anything's possible, and nobody's perfect. And nobody's perfect. That's the middle part. Everybody's welcome. Nobody's perfect, and anything can happen. So even if your number adds up to, your name adds up to 666, you're welcome here because none of us are perfect and anything can happen. All right. So I hope you're excited. This is pretty fun stuff. This is the kind of stuff I think people get attracted to Revelation because it's kind of mysterious. So part of what we'll do might demystify it just a bit. If you have your Bibles, let's turn to Revelation chapter 13. All right, before we start, though, let's just say a word of prayer. God in heaven, uh, we love you, and we're grateful that you love us. Lord, I just pray for any of the needs that might be represented in this room, whether personally or by our family and friends, uh, that you would intervene in those ways that only you can. Pray for us tonight um, as we dedicate this time and set it aside to study the scriptures, that your spirit would uh, rest upon us, that your spirit would guide and teach us all that we might have ears to hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches, and that we might be filled with gratitude for your love and grace, with compassion for one another and our city and our world, and filled with courage to respond um, bravely. In Jesus' name, amen. Revelation 13. I wish I had a really deep voice to read this one. Mm. The dragon stood on the shore of the sea, and I saw a beast coming out of the sea. And it had ten horns and seven heads, with ten crowns on its horns, and on each of its head a blasphemous name. The beast I saw resembled a leopard, but had feet like those of a bear and a mouth like a lion. The dragon gave the beast his power and his throne and great authority. One of the heads of the beast seemed to have had a fatal wound, but the fatal wound had been healed. The whole world was filled with wonder and followed the beast. 
people worshipped the dragon because he had given authority to the beast. And they also worshipped the beast and asked, Who is like the beast? Who can wage war against it? The beast was given a mouth to utter proud words and blasphemies and to exercise its authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to blaspheme God and to slander his name and his dwelling place and those who live in heaven. And it was given power to wage war against God's holy people and to conquer them. And it was given authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation. All inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast, all whose names have not been written in the Lamb's book of life, the Lamb who was slain from the creation of the world. Whoever has ears, let them hear. If anyone is to go into captivity, into captivity they will go. If anyone is to be killed with the sword, with the sword they will be killed. This calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of God's people. Then I saw a second beast coming out of the earth, and it had two horns like a lamb, but it spoke like a dragon. It exercised all the authority of the first beast beast on its behalf and made the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose fatal wound had been healed. And it performed great signs, even causing fire to come down from heaven to the earth in full view of the people. Because of the signs it was given power to perform on behalf of the first beast, it deceived the inhabitants of the earth. It had ordered them to set up an image in honor of the beast who was wounded but, um, uh, by the sword and yet lived. The second beast was given power to give breath to the image of the first beast so that the image could speak and cause all who refused to worship the image be killed. It also forced all people, great and small, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hands or on their foreheads so that they could not buy or sell unless they had the mark, which is the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the person who has insight calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man. That number is 666. Boom, 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 boom. <laughs> That's a good one. So um, what are we to make of this? I mean, this is, this is the, the scary bits. Um, people have been worried about um, the beast um, and about the mark and the number of the beast for a long time. We talked uh, last week how the word Antichrist, which only appears in 1 John and 2 John, and in 1 John it's in the plural, and how John says the Antichrists are already among us. But that term Antichrist kind of got lifted from that text and used... Even in the early church it did, um, kind of mixing together a variety of ideas. The false Christ from Matthew, the man of lawlessness from Thessalonians, these beasts from Revelation. You mix them up, you throw them in a pot, you let it boil at temperature of apocalyptic, and a couple hundred years later, this idea of this world leader pops out who looks something like John Voight. Sure. At least he did in the movies, right? So when I was a kid, uh, movies were popular like A Thief in the Night. Does that ring a bell with anyone? Thief in the Night. It was like before there was Left Behind, there was A Thief in the Night. And I remember this. Um, I mean, we grew up in a conservative Pentecostal home. 
So we, um, we actually did go to the movies, but my grand, we didn't tell my grandparents that we did. <laughs> but uh, we went to church all the time, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. Sometimes we'd have to go on other nights for other events. I felt like all we did was go to church. And on Sunday nights in particular, I remember feeling a fair amount of guilt as a boy. I'd rather stay home. And I felt bad about it. I felt like I should want to go to church. But to be honest, I'd just been to church. And I didn't want to go back. I wanted to stay and watch Mutual of Omaha's Wild Kingdom. That came on on Sunday nights. And I loved those animals. Anybody remember that show? Yes. Oh, you're my people. Yeah. And so the show would come on because we were always running late. I should have never known there was that show, except my mother always went to things late. And so it came on about the time church started, and I'd get interested in it, and then we'd get in the car and make it to church, but we were always late. And I never got to see how Mutual of Omaha ended. But in any case, um, sometimes, oh, that'd be great. Sometimes we'd roll into church, and there, there were two things that could happen that would kind of lift my spirits. I'd either see this like tour bus and I'd know that when I walked in where the pulpit normally was, it would be removed and there'd be some mic stands and some extra sound equipment. Do you know what was going on? Yeah, yeah, a gospel group was singing. They were traveling and so instead of having a normal service, we're going to have these gospel singers kind of sing. I love that. I thought, man, this is great. You know, if you can't see Mutual Omaha, at least you get to hear the gospel music. And then, this is rarer, that this would happen. We'd get to church, I'd walk in, and, and about halfway down the middle aisle was a 16 millimeter projector. You know, the ones with the big um, reels on them? Yeah? And where, again, where the pulpit would normally sit was this screen on a tripod. And I'm like, what? We're watching movies at church? <laughs> so we watched A Thief in the Night, and People got tattoos on their hands and their foreheads and other people were getting their heads chopped off with guillotines and people were disappearing and their, and their clothes were like neatly folded next to their shoes, which worried me because I thought, are you raptured naked? <laughs> I had bad dreams about that. So I had a reoccurring dream as a child like young child, like six, seven. I remember my age because I know the house we lived in. Like we moved into the house that I kind of grew up in when I was eight. My dad built it. But before that, we lived in this smaller house up on the hill, we called it. And sure enough, it was up on a hill. Um, and I remember the dream from that house, ages six and seven, a reoccurring dream that the rapture was taking place, that Jesus was coming back to Seven Mile Ford Church of God. That's where we went and that he was coming back to the church and I was needing to get to the church not to miss the event only to realize I had not packed my lunchbox or my suitcase. And so I'm like running back to the house to get my lunchbox and suitcase while I shout, don't leave Jesus. And that's when I woke up every time. It's amazing I'm as normal as I am. I say as I am because I figure I'm not all again that normal, but yeah. So this is interesting. In, in Revelation, in this kind of thoroughly symbolic book, um, 
their uh, apocalyptic literature and apocalyptic language is very black and white, more so than the reality we live in. Like if we've lived, if we've lived a life, we've realized that things aren't always black and white. Sometimes things are just messy. There's, there's fuzzy edges. Sometimes there's even fuzzy centers. I mean, how do we negotiate the messiness of life? Like, how do you do it? It's not easy. But in this kind of literature, it doesn't, it doesn't paint with any shades of gray. It doesn't paint with any color. It's just this dichotomy. There's the beast and there's the lamb. There's good and there's evil. There's right and there's wrong. And there's no nuance and there's no subtlety. That's just the nature of this kind of language. It's, it's harsh. It's stark. And in this kind of language, there's this uh, kind of parallel between this godly, holy trinity of the one who sits on the throne, the Lord God, the Almighty. In other biblical texts, it would be referred to as the Father. The Lamb that was slain but is now standing, who now also sits on the throne and who will uh, return at the end as judge, um, Jesus, firstborn of the dead, Jesus Christ, and of the Spirit. So you have kind of Father, Son, Spirit, and then you have dragon, who is called Satan, the one they call the devil. So not a lot of ambiguity there. <laughs> the first beast and the second beast. And so those kind of parallel each other a bit. One nice thing about these kind of beast language um, is that because it's left in the symbolic realm, it's referent, what it's referring to, in the world can uh, seem to be applied kind of again and again. The, the idea that the first beast had a mortal wound to his head yet was living is a historical reference to Nero, the emperor, who had been wounded and everybody thought he was going to die and he survived it. And they're like, oh, you know, kind of an evil ruler. What are we going to do now? Um, and then other emperors, of course, would come behind them. And this idea that the first beast is worshipped and encouraged to be worshipped by the second beast is also has a very clear referent historically. There was um, emperor worship. Like in addition to the worship of Zeus or Apollo, Aphrodite or, or Esclepius. Um, or whoever they were worshiping, the Greek gods, the Latin gods, right? They, they started to worship the emperor. And so emperor worship um, became quite common. Caligula uh, thought he'd put himself a statue of himself at the Jewish temple. So this idea of a, a statue that would be worshiped is already, because Nero and Caligula have already lived and died by the time Revelation's being written. Most likely the emperor at the time was a guy named Domitian. But all of that's in their thought process. And so, um, I mean, just in your lifetime, I'd be curious, how many people have you heard could be the beast or the Antichrist? I mean, M Mikhail Gorbachev? Did you hear that back in the day? Right? And he already had that little birthmark on his forehead. He'd been marked. Ronald Wilson Reagan, he has three names, six letters each. 
What about Henry Kissinger? Did you hear that sermon? He's Jewish. And then a little, a little concerned about his politics. Some people were. There were uh, Adolf Hitler, Joseph Stalin, any, any dictator, Idi Amin, Pol Pot, Slobodan Milosevic. I mean, we can go on and on and on. Various people have been beastly. They've, they've exerted great power. Power that how, how could the average person resist? Their, their mark um, bears this huge um, imprint over our lives and culture. Let me give you this one. Are you familiar uh, with your U.S. Uh, revolutionary history? So the king of England at the time was King George, King George III. He passed a law that said without his stamp, your currency in the colonies was now valueless. Like only new currency coming out of England that had the stamp of the king had any value. Meaning without the mark of the world leader, you cannot buy or sell. I'll give you one guess what the sermons were on that next Sunday in the colonies. <laughs> he was the Antichrist, right? He's the one we had to resist. Um, yeah, I think so. And even, and even this reference to beasts, there's not just one beast, right? There's two. There's one from the sea. That's the first one. There's one from the land. That's the second one. And, and then as to the marker and the number, early Pentecostals um, kind of resisted getting social security numbers because they didn't want the government having a number associated with them. Because if I get a number, then I'm known by my number. And all of that being known by number was just suspect. Uh, barcodes. Like I remember when I was a kid, Tuesday nights was um, green stamp day at the Piggly Wiggly, which we collected. And then you turned them in and you got stuff like, I don't know, ice cream makers and mailboxes and, you know, stuff from the catalog. And I remember going to Piggly uh, Wiggly every Tuesday and I, was, I watched the cashier and I thought, man, this is the greatest job. What a cool job. You pick something up, you type in a number, you pick something up, you type in a number. I thought, when I grow up, I want to be a cashier. <laughs> And then one day I walked in and lo and behold, they're not punching numbers anymore. They're scanning barcodes. I mean, Star Trek has nothing on us. I thought, now I really want to be a cashier. Like I so wanted just to grab something and scan it, you know, but those cashiers, they're kind of serious about their job. They kind of trying to scan something and they're like, this is high tech equipment. So, yeah, there were some who were suspicious of barcodes because you could, a barcode could hold this information and it could be scanned. I've heard, I've heard, yeah, so I've heard that as well, that, you know, we just, say again? Yeah, Thief of the Night, yeah, they had a barcode on their hand, right. I meant to tell you that. Like when I was a kid, there was a time, I, don't, I can't remember how long this lasted, but this is 
This was after my um, recurring nightmare where Jesus returned to Seven Mile Ford. And a little bit later in life, I, um, I found myself often walking around with my right hand in my pocket, protecting it, right? Just in case someone come up and stamp the mark on me. And I know, I was a real paranoid kid, wasn't I? And if I was real paranoid, I'd keep my other hand on my forehead. So I feel like I was good because they said if you had the mark, I was a very literalistic reader of the text. I mean, I, I knew the Bible. Um, I just I think I just turned my mic off. <laughs> there you go. Um, I knew the Bible, I just understand it. And so I, I would, I thought it was somebody comes up and stamps my left hand. I can just tell Jesus or Peter, whoever, my right hand's good and so is my forehead, right? So the, I don't know how I got this mark on the base of my left hand, but according to the text, you should still take me in. Oh. I, I probably really should see a counselor now that I think about it. He got, he got, he got a, any good recommendations? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, chips, barcodes, magnetic strips on the back of credit cards. I've heard it all. Social Security numbers, the Stamp Act. Um, I mean, if, if it is a magnetic strip that ends up being the mark of the beast, I understand, given the number of people I've tried to counsel who have huge credit card debt. But that, that's just, that's intended to be funny. I apologize. I shouldn't joke about it. So what might this mean? Let's start with a number and we'll work back to the, um, the mark. The number is actually quite easy to understand or to explain. It might seem opaque, but it really wasn't. So in Hebrew and in Greek, there were symbols for letters, but there were no symbols for numbers. So in our language, we know we have symbols for letters, A through Z. You can mix and match them in any way you want, and you can spell words. And then you have zero through nine, 10 digits, and you can mix and match them and make numbers. But in Hebrew and in Greek, you didn't have a separate symbol system for letters and numbers. Uh, Latin did a little better. Uh, so you're familiar with Roman numerals, right? That's Latin's attempt to overcome this idea of not having separate symbol systems. So in Latin, the I is one, the V is five, the X is 10, the um, L is 50, the C is 100, and the M is 1,000. And you can mix and match those um, and write any number. So let's think of the year you were born. So I was born in 1971. I don't know if that makes me sound old to you or young. Yeah. So that's... Um, so, all right. So 1971, 45 years ago. So if you're going to write 1971, you would write an M for 1,000, a CM for 900, an LXX for 70, and an I. So MCMLXXI says 1,971, and so that's how you would write 1971. And if you look up old books, 
Sometimes the copyright date, uh, you know, behind the title page has the copyright written in Roman numerals as opposed to regular numerals. You see that? Yeah. So, but in Hebrew and in Greek, each letter had a fixed numerical value. So the, the ABCs of Hebrew is Aleph, Beit, Gimel, Dalet, uh, Hey, Vav, Zion, Chet, Tet, Yod, so on and so forth, right? So the Aleph was worth one, that's like the A. The Beit was worth two. The uh, Gimel was worth three. The Dalet was worth four and so on and so forth. And once they got to 10, then they went uh, 20, 30, 40, 50. And once they got to 100, they went 100, 200, 300, 400. But each letter always was worth that exact amount, which made writing letters or numbers, excuse me, very difficult. What it also meant was, it was that any given word, because a word's made up of letters, not only could it be read, but the number, its numerical value could be calculated. So I have um, some handouts for us today. And these contain the numerical values and the Hebrew letters and their English equivalents. <coughs> and so we're going to do a name together so we can practice the calculation of the number of our names. And then we're going to let you do your own name. So we're going to start with David. In particular, we're going to start with the Hebrew spelling of David, David. So David is spelled Dalit, which is number four on the list. Vav, which is number six on the list. And Dalit, which is four. Um, so it is written. I should, have a, I should have brought in a larger board tonight. It's written like that. <clears throat> Dalit, Vav, Dalit. That's how David's spelled in Hebrew, with just those three letters. Dalit, Vav, Dalit. That's that symbol, that symbol, and that symbol. <clears throat> and so if the first one is worth four, the second one is worth six, and the third one is a repeat, also worth four. Four plus six plus four is worth how much? Fourteen. Very good. So David, or David, can be pronounced David, or it can be calculated, which is 14. Perhaps this, the fact that this number equals 14 is hinted at in Matthew's gospel in the genealogy of Jesus. So Matthew's gospel, chapter 1, verse 1, says this is the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of Abraham, the son of David. Saying that Jesus is the son of Abraham means he is a true blue Jew. Saying that Jesus is the son of David means that he is in the royal line and perhaps uh, eligible for kingship or messiahship, right? So if we're saying he's Jesus Christ, <clears throat> we're saying he is the Messiah. Jesus, the Messiah, the son of Abraham, the son of David. And then it starts with Abraham and it starts to kind of give us a genealogy. Abraham begat Isaac, Isaac begat Jacob, Jacob begat Joseph, and so on and so forth. But once we get down to Jesus, he has this very interesting phrase that says this. It's like, hey, pay attention. These are three groups of 14. There's 14 generations from Abraham to David, 
there are 14 from David to the exile and 14 from the exile to Jesus. There's a verse that says that. A couple interesting things about that. Why point out that Jesus's genealogy can be grouped in three groups of 14? Well, what the Hebrews would know that we didn't know, apparently, is that 14 is the number of David. They would have all known that. I mean, it would have been as common to them as if I said to you, I'm going to the Big Apple. Where am I going? New York, yeah. You didn't have to think, oh, maybe Robbie's buying a Macintosh or he likes a Golden Delicious, right? No, and, and you say Big Apple, you say Windy City, you think Chicago. You say the Big Easy, you think New Orleans. You say Sin City, you think Phil Grimes. No, just kidding. <laughs> little joke there. You think Las Vegas. Yeah. Um, So you say 14, people think David. Now what's especially interesting about Matthew's telling of that story is that they're not three groups of 14. You have to count David twice. In order to get three groups of 14, you have to count David as the last of the first group of 14. He's number 14. And then you have to recount him as the first one of the second. Yeah, so it's 14 generations from Abraham to David. That's true. Then it's 14, not from Solomon, but 14 from David. You have to recount him to the exile. And then 14 from the exile to um, Jesus. Now, either Matthew was bad at counting, which would have been horrible given that he was a tax collector, um, or he's doing this intentionally to kind of draw the reader's attention, those who know Hebrew anyway, that um, he's kind of numerically attached to David. It's like, it's like a pun, except it's, it's, it's numbers. It's like a numerical pun. It's like saying David, David, David. Um, all right. So he's doing it to be symbolic? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, he's, he's trying to make his point, and he, it's kind of a stretch to make it, but he's, he's still making his point that Jesus is a legitimate Messiah because he is a descendant of David. He counts David twice in his calculation. Mm-hmm. No, probably not. I mean, he's, 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 he seems to be father, following the fatherly line in Matthew. There is an argument that Luke might be following Mary's line because Joseph seems to be mentioned parenthetically and then the father of uh, Jesus' grandfathers are different in the two lines. And then they stay different until they get back to David and then they line up again, Right. So we have that phenomenon. But in Matthew itself, he seems to just be following the father line and he does count David twice. Um, I mean, I think he knew he did. But I think that goes to the pun, right? When people use puns, sometimes puns are unintended, but often people use them for the sake of being punny, you know. Is that, is that a word? All right. So if you have a pen, there should be pens in the backs of your seats. This is what you do. Start by writing your name in English. And then try and find the English equivalent, which is the far right column. And then go over and see the numerical value of that letter. And then write it down beneath the letter. 
And then once you get all of your letters written down, tabulate your total. That's a great question. Uh, gematria, which is what this is called, is not an exact science. <laughs> um, you can use whatever you want. You can use your um, nickname. You can use your given name. You can use just your first name. You can use your first, middle, and last name. Uh, but that's, that's the point. It's, 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 not, it's, um, it's not used in any kind of precise way. Though it was used extensively, like so much so that we find it in ancient graffiti. The soldier who is 510 has eyes only for the woman who is 1,208. It was like carving your initials in the tree. It, I mean, it was similar to that, right? When you carve initials in trees, you don't carve out the whole name, but you know the initials stand for something. So in ancient Roman graffiti, sometimes we found uses of gematria, the numerical value of a name, used in graffiti. Again, it's a similar thing. It's like a, a symbolic abbreviation of the person. Yeah. Oh, good question. If I, were, if I were working from English backwards, I would. I just started with the Hebrew because I happened to know how to spell that word in Hebrew. Not every name has a Hebrew equivalent, but David's kind of a popular name in Hebrew. Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, uh, the oldest form of Hebrew didn't have vowels, and the Aleph wasn't pronounced, although it did have a numerical value. You, it just, E's not worth anything. Yeah. Yeah, if you don't see a letter on the list that's in your name, it gets a zero value, yeah. If you started with English and worked back, yeah. Now, I'm sure you've always, always wondered, what is the value of my name? You're 304. And is that just your first name? No, that's my name. That's what I go by. All right, I got you. That is your middle name. Gotcha. 304. You might want to add up that first name and last name then, because see how close it gets. Uh, there's no normal. Kind of what Debbie's question is. Uh, there's no normal here. There's there's a lot of play. Yeah. So we'll, we'll we'll talk we'll talk about that in terms of possibilities as to um, uh, kind of calculating this. I mean, generally, this is not um, what what is gematria and what is it not. It is a, a phenomenon that just takes place by nature of these languages not having separate symbols for numbers. Numerology, the study of numbers, was popular uh, in the ancient world, both in kind of symbol systems and in the sense that they, uh, they were advancing significantly with the use of numbers in mathematics. So basic tools, pulleys and levers and such, um, geometry, the study of the stars. I mean, 300 years before Jesus was born, you get Greek mathematicians uh, tracking the constellations. Uh, I have a new show that I'm kind of addicted to 
called Alone. It's on the History Channel. Have you seen it? It's kind of, they've been in uh, Patagonia um, recently. So one of the things I like about it is sometimes they'll have a, a time, time lapse and they'll show the stars. But if you notice on the mountains in the time lapse, the stars don't move straight across the sky. They move on a curve, right? That's because the earth is curved. That's, that's why it looks like that, like it's moving on a curve. It's because there is a curve. We just can't see it unless you watch the stars. So there were Greek mathematicians measuring the distance of the stars and then estimating the circumference of the globe. So 300 years before Jesus, a guy estimates the circumference of the earth at 29,000 miles. Or excuse me, 29,000, yeah, 29,000 miles. And it is 29,000 miles and change. I'm just saying, that's good math. Like, I can't look up in the stars and hardly find the Big Dipper. Somebody 2,300 years ago looked up at the stars and was able to figure out how far it was around the earth. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Good question. There, um, as in English, there are some letters that, ha that share the same phonetic sound. So like a C and a K, k, k right, have the same sound. And in Hebrew, there are two letters that make a T sound. So, again, not an exact science. You're going to have to choose. You can do both if you like. Right. So the nine, the tet... Um, is a little bit of a softer T. And the 400, the Tav, is a little bit of a harder T. Which it, we don't always differentiate that in English, especially in my own Appalachian accent. Um, there are a lot of things I can't even hear. Like the difference between P-I-N and P-E-N, one you, you, know, you stick with and the other you write with, I can't hardly tell the difference in my own head. Pen and pen. I mean, I, I can because I've forced myself to say them differently. Not because I grew up saying those differently. Those, those were um, homonyms for me growing up. They were both called pen with a short I. The short E just wasn't used in Appalachian dialect. Um, a little bit, yeah. And um, the, the difference between... Um, the short I and the long E was often inverted. Um, if, I'm, if I'm still here, we wouldn't say still, we would say steel. I'm still here. We, we use a long E. And then we use the short I where we should have used the long E. Uh, I work in the still mine, not the steel mine. Yeah. Yeah, it's also in, in, the, in Virginia Appalachia dialect. Mm -hmm. Yes, so the, the number of your full name would be 84? 527. Praise the Lord. It's not 666. No, does it not? Woo! Oh, I have to, I have to pray for you, anoint you with oil, baptize you. All right, before we get, before we get too carried away, if you like, 
There, there is no normal. Yeah. So here's the question. Um, what does this, the number of the beast is the number of a person and that number 666, what does that refer to? Well, people have been guessing for years. So one idea is that there is going to be a final world leader who one day the name uh, will add up to that. But of course, the name in what language? In Hebrew or in Greek? So we've only done this in Hebrew. Um, the Greek alphabet, which is different than this, it's alpha, beta, gamma, delta, right, um, has its own numbers. And so should we be calculating this in Hebrew or should we be calculating it in Greek? Hmm, who knows? So, some suggestions as to this beast character. So there's a fairly clear um, symbolic reference to Nero. I mean, Nero was the harshest of the Roman emperors in terms of persecution of Christians. Nero was the one who had seemed like he had been fatally wounded in the head but lived through it. There was a myth that Nero was actually not dead and he was going to come back and take control. A little bit like Elvis, except different. I mean, but you've heard those, those myths that Elvis didn't actually die and he was like hiding out somewhere with Jimi Hendrix or somebody, um, all playing guitars together. And then you get like these Elvis sightings. So there was, that was going on with Nero at the time. People was, were afraid that Nero actually didn't die and he was going to come back and re-exert his tyrannical force. So if you take the word Nero Caesar and you transliterate it into Hebrew, that is, you take the letters N-R-O-C-S-R, and you write those in Hebrew letters, and then you add them up, I'm going to give you one guess what they add up to. 666. So, given that there's already been some symbolic references to Nero then maybe this number was also somehow a reference to Nero. Not to say that Revelation was saying that Nero is going to get reincarnated, but that the, um, the anti-God leader is personified most clearly in Nero. Like today, if we want to talk about the kind of quintessential evil leader, uh, probably not. I mean, who... In our culture, when we say the worst leader of the 20th century, yeah, we say Hitler. Hitler's the one who kind of gets the pride of place, so to speak, in terms of the, our definition of evil. Well, Nero had the pride of place of definition of evil back then. And if you take Nero Caesar, you write it in Hebrew, you add it up, it comes to 666. Now, what's interesting about this is... There are some ancient manuscripts that say the number is not 666, but 616. So that's Revelation chapter 13, verse 18. And if you have a study Bible, kind of what Bill has here, I bet you could look at your footnotes for 1318. And I bet there's a reference in there that says some manuscripts say the number of the beast is 616. 
616, not 666, 666. What's interesting about that is, as Sharon asks with the T, which T do I use? There's different ways that you might transliterate Nero Caesar into Hebrew. One of them, Nero ends with an N because in Greek it was Neron, and one of them doesn't. If you include the final new, it adds up to 666. But that final new, new, the N sound, N, um, is worth 50. So if you spell it without it, what does it add up to? 616, yeah. And so the fact that this explanation of Nero Caesar might explain both the 666, which was in most of the manuscripts, and perhaps also explain the 616, gives it an extra level of credence because it might explain both what most of the manuscripts said and then also explain this other. So there's some, you know, some monk somewhere copying this down and says, go, goes to add it up, you know, he, you know, doing his math. And he's like, that doesn't add up to 666. That adds up to 616. So he thought he was fixing the text, right? All right. So Caesar, Nero, Nero Caesar is option A. It's our first candidate for this beast. Now, we're not going to caucus or anything tonight for the candidates, but, um, but that's our first candidate. Yeah. Yeah, it's like, like yeah, so Nero's already dead. Yeah, the, and, and I don't, I mean, I, we do believe in a resurrection right. at the end for the judgment, but we don't actually believe in individual Christians getting, re, or individual people getting reincarnated. Right, but you're saying it's like more of a reference of like, it could be someone like this. Yeah, that's, that's, that's what that is. Now here's, here's yeah, uh, 60s, not the 1960s, obviously. <laughs> yeah, but in the 60s. I forget the exact years. Yeah, so uh, when Paul was in, uh, in prison in Rome, uh, Nero was the Caesar. Yeah. And so Domitian, yeah, yeah, and maybe Paul too, right. Um, Domitian, a uh, couple of emperors later in the 90s is probably when Revelation was written. He was also a pretty, pretty tough guy, pretty bad guy. All right, um, so here's another possibility. Domitian, who would have been literally the world leader, anti-God figure, the head of Rome, referred to as the son of God, worshipped in Roman temples, in charge of the Roman economy, in charge of the Roman military, in charge of the Roman government. Who can withstand Domitian? I mean... Yeah, they used that title, right? Because they had these, um, emperor worship was a religion. And so the previous emperor had died and gone on into the spirit world. And the current emperor was the manifestation of God in our presence. And so they prayed to him. Yeah, and they referred to him as the son of God. So Domitian, and this is fairly common even today, leaders will mint new coins and coins often have faces on them. So I was just recently, this past uh, summer, 
in, um, in Turkey um, at a museum, and I actually saw this particular Domitian coin that I'm getting ready to reference. It's the first time I ever actually saw it in person. I was really beside myself. The students were like, Dr. Waddell has gone crazy. Um, I'm like, no, I'm just excited. So there's a coin that Domitian minted, and it had his impression on the front of it. You know, we have what? Abe Lincoln on the penny, Thomas Jefferson on the nickel, Dwight D. Eisenhower on the dime, George Washington on the quarter. We don't really have 50 cent pieces anymore, do we? But we've had different ones. We've had a Lady Liberty one. We had a JFK one. We had a Ben Franklin one. You can kind of date your 50 cent pieces, right? So on this Domitian coin, he, he had a really long regal title. Too long to kind of fit all the way around. Um, kind of like the Brits, you know, George, William, Henry, Thomas, Nigel, whatever, on and on. So what, what Domitian, what's that? There you go, yeah, yeah, Beauregard. Um, the Domitian put the first two letters of each of his names around the coin, and without having to transliterate them into Hebrew, just reading their Greek value, I'll give you one guess what they added up to. 666. Now imagine this. Imagine you're living in Pergamum or Ephesus or Philadelphia or Thyatira, one of the you know, cities that house the seven churches. And you get this text that says, who can withstand this satanically empowered world leader without whose mark you cannot buy or sell? Literally, as they pulled out their coins, it said on there, 666. You can't buy or sell without it. It's, it's in the currency. It's kind of like the Stamp Act with King George, except it was about 1,900 years earlier. Or not quite that. 1,600 years earlier. 1,900 years ago from now. Yeah. So, um, who, who is the beast? Well, certainly, in some reasonable way, all of the original readers of Revelation would have associated this with Domitian. Rome, of whom Domitian is the head, the emperor. There's, another, there's, a, there's a third possibility I'd like to share with you in terms, of the, in terms of the number. So we have Caesar. The advantage is that Caesar can explain both the 666 and the 616. The disadvantage is, in order to get that, you have to start with the Greek and work back to the Hebrew. And did John really expect his readers to do that? I mean, who can do that? I mean, you can't do it. I mean, you don't know Hebrew. But the thing is, most of the original readers of Revelation wouldn't have known Hebrew either, right? They were Greek speakers. Greek was their language. They wouldn't have known Hebrew any, any better than you would know Hebrew. And so that's kind of... Um, suspicious about that as an option because I think John wrote for his readers to understand. He didn't write for his readers to be confused. Of course, you read it and you think, I think he's trying to confuse me, but he's really not. That's why God sent me to you. Maybe. All right. Third option. And this is fairly common with the use of gematria. 
going back to the idea of a numerical pun, they'll use a word, and then in the same sentence, they'll use its number. So the number of the beast is the number of a man, and that number is 666. So the Greek word for beast, therion, theta, eta, rho, iota, omicron, nu, if you add those letters together, it adds up to 666. Literally, the number of beast, the word beast in Greek, adds up to 666. So that the 666 is not a reference to someone's name. It literally is the number of the word beast. And what's interesting about that is therion is like the dictionary form of the word. But because Greek is like uh, Spanish, it's more inflected. It, it's um, the endings change. So, you know, if you say a red car, it's rojo. And if you say a red table, it's roja. It's changing based on the gender. So something similar takes place in Greek where the word beast, when it's being used as the object of a preposition, like I want you to listen to me versus I want you, right? So both I and me refers to Robbie, but I if it is the subject of the sentence and me if it's the object of preposition. Follow that, yeah? So the actual spelling of beast, therion, in that sentence is not therion, but theriu. And theriu adds up to 616. Which means, I mean, follow this. Imagine you are a monk, a scribe, and you're having to write it out. And you understand how Gematria works. And it says the number of beasts is 666. And you look at the word theriu, and you do a little calculation over here, and it adds up to 616 based on that spelling. Maybe you do. I'm trying to correct it, right? The reason we think Therion, or excuse me, the reason we think 666 is actually the original is two things. One, it's in the older, more reliable text. Two, 666 is a really interesting number uh, in ancient mathematics. So this is an extra step of, of, of layer here, which you, you may or may not uh, want. But you're familiar with square numbers? What's the square of one? And the square of two? And the square of three? Nine, yeah. So we call them square numbers because um, they make a square. Did you know this? Um, yeah, I'm gonna, I'll go grab it. Well, if you grab it, I'll grab my marker. Imagining I carry a marker in my bag. Yes. Thanks. I actually carry an eraser. What's this? This is not going to translate very well in the podcast. But... <clears throat> All right, well, we can still use it. Can everybody see? Ish? All right. Can you imagine if we did this on Sunday morning? 
we plan, we plan our Sundays like weeks in advance. You know, seamless transitions. Wednesday, I just come in here and goof off with you guys. <laughs> All right. So the square of one is one. Square of two is four. Square of three is nine. See how it makes a square? Like the word squaring comes from this phenomenon. The square of four is 16. If you put four X's and then four rows of four X's, it adds up to 16. The square of five is 25. Five X's, five rows of five X's is 25. Called square because it squares. There's another phenomenon, which you might be less familiar with, called triangling. So the triangle of one, you think I'm making this up, but I'm not. The triangle of one is one. The triangle of two is three. The triangle of three is six. The triangle of four, for you bowlers, is 10. Called triangling because it creates a triangle. Every number in Revelation fits into one of these categories. Like, you know, not every number's a square because you try to take the square root of something and it gives you those, you know, all those after the decimal point. But every single number is either a square or a triangle. All the square numbers represent good things and all the triangle numbers represent evil things. Given how many numbers he uses, it's unlikely that that's accidental. 666 is the triangle of 36. So if you have 36 on the bottom and then 35, 34 on up, that's um, the triangle of 36 is 666, which is an interesting number because it's a double triangle because uh, 36 is the triangle. It's the triangle of eight. Yeah, all the square numbers kind of represent the world, good things, and all the triangle numbers represent evil. Yeah. Yeah, this is... Yeah, this is the sum... Yeah, this is the sum of, um, let's see if I can think of this right. This is the sum of consecutive integers. So one plus two is three. One plus two plus three is six. One plus two plus three plus four is 10. Triangles are the sums of consecutive integers. Squares are the sums of even integers. No, odd integers. One plus three is four. One plus three plus five is nine. One plus three plus five plus nine is, 20, is 16. Yeah. So the uh, squares are the sums of odd integers. Triangles are the sum of consecutive integers. Ancient math. Thank you. All right. Yeah, there you go. And uh, this, this, uh, this is a reference to our... Uh, cornhole um, tournament that we had Sunday night at the Super Bowl, which uh, me and Gary Duncan got knocked out of the first round because we stink. <laughs> we got beat by a couple of college kids that I think they must just sit around and play cornhole all day. <laughs> yeah, Dennis. Uh, were you, were you gonna, I guess, 
is yeah, yeah, it's just an interesting number because it itself is a triangle. And that those don't happen very often. And so it's like, it, it's, it's a kind of mathematical way of saying this is like super bad, like really evil, like the darkness of dark, the shadow of shadows. Um, so what do we do with this? Let's, let's, let's hold off, let's, let's put what we now know about numbers and names and gematria on hold just for a second. We'll come back to it. And let's come back to this concept of a mark. So being marked uh, generally in the ancient world was not a good thing. I mean, they would, they would tattoo slaves um, on their foreheads uh, with the name of their owner. Like, you know, it says right here, if it said Dennis, it meant like I belong to Dennis. Yeah. And so you do get this back to that um, holy version of things and that evil version of things. You know, father, son, spirit, dragon, beast of the sea, beast of the land. You get the mark of the beast. You get the seal of God. The seal of God is placed on the forehead of the 144,000 great multitude, both in chapter 7 and then later in chapter 14, we see the reference again to the seal of God on the forehead, then explained as to the new name that God has given us. Yeah? We belong to God. They belong to the beasts, right? We're with the lamb. They're with the beast. I, I said we are with the lamb. I want to make sure we're all the good guys. All right? We're not beastly. Yeah, you're welcome. So, what is this idea of a mark? So, back to growing up, um, in those movies I watched that scared me, and... Uh, what was that guy's name? Was it Larry Norman? Does that ring a bell? He was a Christian. Uh, yeah, he used to, yeah. So uh, there was a song we sang. Actually, it was that before my time just a little bit. This is back when I was still having those nightmares. This might have been one of the causes of those nightmares. But the youth group, our youth group had a youth choir. So we had a choir that the adults sing in every Sunday. And then we had a youth choir that periodically would sing on Sunday nights. I don't know why they never let the youth sing on Sunday morning, but that's the way they did it, yeah? So the youth choir would sing on Sunday night, and they would sing this Larry Norman song, Wish We'd All Been Ready. We must have, like, practically gone to the same church, Daryl, growing up. And it, yeah, it goes something like this. <clears throat> Husband and wife laying in bed. She turns her head just to find he's gone. I wish we'd all been ready. And I don't know why it's always the husband that got to go to heaven and the wife that got left behind, but it was definitely a little bit of male chauvinism in Larry Norman's little, yeah, in Larry Norman's telling of the eschaton. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, you get this, yeah, you know, yeah, kind of scary, scary, scary stuff. But let me ask you this. Um... Is there anything that you believe that you can do with or to your body? Listen up. Is there anything that you can do yourself, to yourself, either with or to your body, that having done it, you are in an eternal right relationship with God? It doesn't matter what you do after that. You and God are good, no matter what. What can you do? To your body. One thing. 
You do it to your body. Yeah, so some would say baptism, that once you've been baptized, you're in. You're in like Flint. doesn't matter what happens after that. You've been baptized. However, that position is not uh, held by all Christians. Um, they would think that while baptism is, is vital and important, it's not magical. It doesn't seal you for eternity. That post-baptism uh, refutation of God and embrace of sin puts you at odds with God. Let me, let me flip the script with this for a second. Is there anything that you know of that you can do one time to your body and having done it, you are now uneligible, uneligible, ineligible. Thank you. I knew there was a word there somewhere I was searching for. You are now ineligible for a relationship with God. Tattoos. Yes. Well, I think that's, yeah. So I would say no to both of those, right? That I don't know how many of you have tattoos, but if you do, let me set you at ease. Um, tattoos, having a tattoo does not make you eternally ineligible. Ineligible. I've really got a brain block on this, don't I? Eternally ineligible to have a relationship with God. There's not a tattoo. There's not a piercing. Some might say suicide. But I have issues with that too because of sickness and the speed of grace and, and the sovereignty of God and, and mental illness and yeah, right? So that's problematic. However, growing up, again, in my Appalachian Pentecostalism, which by the way, was a healthy church where people loved God and grew in God. I often, when I tell my childhood version of it, it might've sound like we're all a bunch of crazies, but... No, we didn't handle snakes, um, but uh, they, they were wonderful people. It, it has made me who I am today. So my, my testimony often through the eyes of a child makes it sound like it was super weirdo, but it, I don't want you to have that impression. I love those people. Uh, blasphemy the Holy Spirit, yeah, whatever that is. I mean, see if you can figure out, yeah, figure, yeah, figure out the definition of that. Doesn't seem to be, yeah. So, watch this. I grew up thinking, and I would say I still think, that there's nothing that you do one time to or with your body that puts you in a right relationship with God forever. I think our relationship with God is kind of based on God loving us, based on us responding in faith, yeah? But it's not like any sin, we'll call it sin, Anything I do that might be wrong or off the mark is somehow not eligible for forgiveness. It's easy, easy for me to say the eligible part as opposed to ineligible, which I'm still struggling with. However, I was taught when I was young that this mark of the beast, if you took it, you're out. You might still be living and breathing, but if you've done it, even if you, I, like, I was like asking questions. Now, hypothetically, Opal, Sunday school teacher, if 
I took it. If somehow I got the mark of the beast with my right hand, could I not just chop it off and still go into heaven? Tormented little kid, wasn't I? <laughs> I was worried about my forehead, right? Because I kind of figured I couldn't chop off my head. <laughs> right. Look, Jesus said that. If your right hand offends you, chop it off. I wasn't sure what it meant to be offended by my right hand, but I figured if the mark of beast was on it, that would offend me a little bit. Oh, maybe she should have. I, I, I got all this stuff from that movie we watched at church. If I had just watched Mutual of Omaha's Wild Kingdom, I'd just love elephants and tigers and lions and stuff. Um, but no, I ended up like this. So, so let me say this. Um, the, the way the mark of the beast has been interpreted in some aspects, in some regions or parts of Christianity it makes it sound like there is this one-time thing that you do that makes you uneligible with God. And I think that runs counterintuitive to everything else we know about God. That God is a forgiver. Right? That, that God, God has gone through a lot to provide forgiveness. And that at the very heart of what God wants to do is to forgive us. In fact, there are some texts that might suggest that God has already forgiven us and it's just up to us now to either um, receive it or reject it. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 says, God no longer holds people's sins against them for what Christ has done to reconcile the world to God. So what is it that you think you do that can be so bad that it's worse than the goodness of Christ and his work. Like, how good is the work of Christ? What about when they say that you deny Christ? Well, I think denying Christ is a, um, a way in which we kind of self-exclude. So I'm not a universalist. That is, I don't think that the work of Christ saves all the world and every person. But I, I think it does forgive us all. Like, I think the atonement is for all. I think that we can, I think we have the capacity, that's the word, to reject it, to turn it down, to push it away. And I think at that point, because God doesn't seem to be overwhelming us to save us or overwhelming us to damn us, right? God seems to be offering us salvation through Christ. And, and that's how I definitely take this 2 Corinthians chapter 5. The reconciliation, the ministry that Christ has given us and that whole point that God doesn't count people's sins against them. I mean, who put that in there? Rob Bell? Yeah, so, so let's come back then to the mark. What would it mean to be marked? So if the mark seems to have this kind of parallel with the seal, mark of the beast, seal of God. You're either with the beast or you're with the lamb. How many of you feel like you're with the lamb? Yep, that's who we identify with. We love Jesus. There you go. Daryl's over there waving at me. I'm up. I'm in. I'm in. I believe in Jesus, right? Can anybody show me your seal?
You left it at home? You didn't know you were going to need it? Like, oh, man, I thought I had my salvation on me. You know, that's, that's like, you know, the Presbyterians, they believe in um, perseverance of the saints. You know, you can't forfeit your salvation. Um, TULIP, it's called, total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and perseverance of the saints. It's very logical. Once you start with the first one, you end up with the last one. Um, Pentecostals, we don't believe in TULIP. We believe in a daisy. He loves me. He loves me not. He loves me. He loves me not. <laughs> hey, I'm here every Wednesday. <laughs> okay. Somewhere in between those two flowers, I think there exists this reality that we find ourselves in with God. Where God's not some codependent parent just waiting around for his rebellious kid to show up. But God's this kind of the example, the most healthy, well-adjusted person. Not to say that God's just a person, but, but yeah, being. Um, that is, is loving us into eternity. So here's my concern. And I take this very seriously. We're going a little long tonight. I apologize. We'll wrap it up. Here's my concern. The way I was taught about the mark of the beast projects any real danger into the future because there is no government actually marking people. And so we think, therefore, I'm not at risk of being marked. But if it functions in a spiritual reality and physical reality, if we understand it rightly, the symbolism, that would have meant something as much to John and his original readers as it means to us today, then to have the seal of God means that God has called us and we've responded and God will see us through the end. We sing, blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. We are assured of our salvation, not because that we can do good, but because Christ does good, has done and is doing as he intercedes at the right hand of the Father, right? That's, it, it, is, it is rooted in Christ. We'll look at this next week, how we defeat Satan. It is, it is in the blood of the Lamb, in the word of our testimony, right? It's the play of those. So the way I was taught projected the danger in the future. So I never had to really fear being marked by the beast because that was going to take place sometime later. But everybody else who's been reading Revelation all these years have lived and have died and some, I believe, have been marked by the beast. What I think it means is if, if you are beastly, if your devotion is to the ungodly systems of this world and all of its power and its might, its economics, its militants, its exclusionary um, power, then we've already devoted ourselves to the most ungodly things in this world. And maybe we like to pick them out. Nero, Domitian, Hitler, Idi Amin, Mussolini, Stalin, what, what have you. But it, but it plays out even in our lives that at the end of the day, at the end of our lives, the question is, are you devoted to the Lamb? Are you devoted to the beast? And if you care, if I care more about my 401k 
than I do about whether or not my neighbor knows the Lord or whether or not my fellow Lakelander has something to eat, then maybe I am already more beastly than Lamley, so to speak. I know Lamley's not a word, but it's what I had to go for. And, and there we then find ourselves that the book of Revelation, like every other book in the Bible, is trying to reveal to us who God is and how God wants us to be and to live. And it is hard to live in this world and not be wrapped up in it and not, and not want to have the newest gadget or phone. Isn't that nice? The magnet kind of sticks on there. Magic. Phone pops out. Hold my thing. Right? My wife drives a Honda minivan. I drive a Volvo sedan. We have season passes to Disney for the kids. How is my life any different than anyone else who lives on Darlington Circle? That's my address. It, would it be possible for anyone just to look at me or the way I live and think, oh, that guy's different. That guy's not like the rest of the world. I want to live unequivocally devoted to Jesus Christ. And I realize there's a multitude of colors and shades in the real world, but sometimes scripture comes at us with this apocalyptic yes or no who you for? And Revelation does that here and says, we know it's easy to just go with the beast. In fact, it's hard not to. But we're calling on you, John says, to be different, to follow the Lamb. Sounds like the gospel. I think it is the gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ found right there in the heart of the book of Revelation. Who knew? Not as sensational perhaps as Larry Norman or Left Behind or The Thief in the Night, but maybe as maybe the rhythm of it rings true to you because you know that's who God is and who Jesus has called us to be. Has been the example for us. So perhaps a lot of what I've said tonight is new to you. And if that's the case, you know, you can kind of hold on to it gently, loosely. I'm not here to make you protégés of Robbie Waddell. But I do pastor this church and um, I do read scripture and I do hope that you can hear this message from Revelation 13. Even if it means something other in addition to this, I think it definitely does mean this. That the mark is a, new, a clear and present danger. And, and we need to resist it. Amen.